one button will get you every time. Really? <coughs> yes, hmm. just a moment. There we hear everything fine. There you go. Good. Hello? Good. Doug? Hello. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. I, I, I now hear you. How? <laughs> nice, nice to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you. I, there's an echo of my voice, which um, they can probably correct from your end. Maybe your headphone volume. Okay, my headphone volume is probably too high because I okay. hear you a little too loudly. All right, that makes sense. Um, if you can turn it down or if the engineer can help you turn it down, that'd be great. I think he just did. Okay. <coughs> Should be all right. <coughs> Let's see. Let me talk for a minute. I'm still hearing a little echo. What do you think, Mitch? Is that at their end? Or? Oh, I think it is. Uh, is the control room mic still on? I pulled it down a bit more. Okay. That's better. Great. Thank you so much. Um, okay. Now, we are a lot more advanced than we were last time I interviewed you. I think it was more like four years ago. I oh, think was it, it was. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was before we were a, were a weekly show. So oh. um, yeah, and you've done a lot in the meantime as well. So that one went into the ether, as you may recall. Yes, it did. But <laughs> things were a lot more haphazard then. So um, I'm hopeful <laughs> this Good. time. Good. Um, and you know, as I as I started really, I've been following your work generally, but as I really started getting into it, I I think what I really want to do is just talk to you about everything you're doing. I think that it's relevant to the questions before us um, rather than focusing in on any kind of um, current events agenda. Um, mm. I want to talk okay. about the big picture as you are navigating through it. Um, okay. So, you know, knowing that as <coughs> we enter this year and with a new Congress and events in Iraq, there's a, there are a lot of questions out there about not just what we do in Iraq, but how we... You know what our what our what our uh, uh, policy and behavior in the world should be generally, and and in the Muslim world, and that's exactly where you're working. So, right. And so, Mitch, how are we? Should we start or? I'd just like to hear just a little bit more from him. Why don't you let's talk about something uh, like tell me what you had for lunch, so we can get some uh, levels. I had actually a uh, on wheat a, uh, a smoked turkey sandwich, uh, homemade. <laughs> That's probably good. <laughs> we have enough. Yeah. <laughs> You're putting um, us all to shame also. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I'd like to start out, um, well, I usually start, and, and before we get into the the stuff, um, let's talk a little bit about the... Um, the religious background and inclinations that you bring to your work, sort of how religion um, has, you know, been a part of your life and and become a part of the work you do. If you can just talk about that a little bit, um, because you started uh, out in the military. And <clears throat> yes, my background was uh, international security. And uh, at a point in the very early 80s when I was teaching at Harvard, a, a uh, thought uh, occurred to me that uh, here we and the Soviet Union were spending trillions of dollars on weapon systems, the sole purpose for which was that they not be used because we were enhancing deterrence right. while, ha while half the world continues to starve to death. So that was uh, one thought. And then uh, another thought in that area um, that came together was uh, the fact that uh, while the United States was clearly second to no one in history in terms of its ability to 
uh, mount a strong defense to keep the peace, uh, I thought it uh, was pretty inept at making peace. So uh, that strand of that thought process on my in my professional life married up with uh, uh, some experience I'd had in terms of uh, having uh, been involved with the National Prayer Breakfast uh, Fellowship Movement in Washington and seeing how people uh, operating on the basis of their personal religious faith in certain situations overseas would were uh, reconciling differences between peoples, between factions, sometimes bringing wars to a halt with no one the wiser for how it all took place. And so uh, I married all that, those three thoughts into uh, thinking that perhaps if uh, this kind of activity on the religious side could be captured in a book that could be made available to policymakers and diplomats, that there might be an opportunity for governments to reinforce it, to build upon it, never try to own it because that would discredit it, but Mm -hmm. to create a synergy for peacemaking that didn't otherwise exist. So it was uh, a few years later when I was being hired for uh, as executive vice president and chief operating officer of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington that I was able to finally act upon this impulse. Uh, they were hiring me for less money than I was making at the time, so I cut mm-hmm. the deal. And, uh, <laughs> despite the fact that the center was reporting to me, uh, there was one project I wanted to do out of my own office. And, and that project essentially was to capture the positive role that religious or spiritual factors could actually play in preventing or resolving conflict, while at the same time advancing social change based on justice and reconciliation. And uh, so it took, uh, since I had a day job, uh, a lot of this was relegated to midnights and weekends. Hmm. And I also uh, quickly concluded as I got into it that whenever you uh, talk about the intersection of religion and politics, it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. So uh, I involved a whole range of people in this project, and it uh, involved folks from nine different disciplines, ranging from theology on one end to military strategy on the other end, and everything in between, like sociology, psychology, all all the rest of it. And um, it came together, it took seven years, and it took $354,000 to produce this book, called uh, Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft. Mm-hmm. And, when when uh, was it that you went to CSIS? Was this... Um, 1987. 87. So, so these were the latter years, although none of us knew it yet, in 1987, of the Cold War, of the Soviet Union, of the world right. as we knew it, completely changing. That's exactly right. And over the course of the seven years in which the book was being produced... Uh, uh, the Berlin Wall came down, mm-hmm. which none of us had anticipated was going to happen as quickly as it did. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then ethnic conflicts started to uh, blossom. And all of a sudden, uh, this book, which sort of suggests the juxtaposition of religious reconciliation with uh, official or unofficial diplomacy, uh, people saw that as having greater potential than traditional diplomacy in dealing with these identity-based conflicts that, uh, you know, take the form of ethnic disputes or religious hostilities, tribal we, warfare, you know what, what have you. When I look at um, at religion, the missing dimension of statecraft, this book that emerged, um, which was written, uh, was it published in 1994? In, the, right. in, in any case, before 9/11, so before the world had changed yet again. Um, in terms of the, the the big picture that we all see, um, and I'm, I was struck as I read that that even then in the early '90s, um, before we really, before we could see many of the implications of 
of the end of the Cold War, um, you were saying that with the decline of this East-West confrontation, which in fact restrained um, a lot of regional conflicts, or kept put them in categories, kept them under control, that that the clashes now were going to have to do with communal identity and that religion would play a critical role in that. And I wonder, I mean, it seems like most people in our culture kind of wo- have been waking up to that fact, the way that the world has changed in the last few years. I wonder if your colleagues in foreign policy circles already then were seeing that. Uh, certainly not at that time. And uh, I think that uh, in some instances, never at all. <laughs> Still haven't. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we have a lot of people running uh, things now who are still involved in those Cold War conflicts, don't we? That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you just look at Iraq today and you, you, you quickly conclude that we as a nation state uh, have virtually uh, no ability to deal with religious differences in a hostile setting, mm-hmm. nor any ability to counter demagogues like bin Laden or Milosevic who manipulate religion for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're long past uh, the, the, the need to come out of the closet uh, in terms of, uh, you know, we're one of the most religious nations in the world uh, today, and right. yet we so compartmentalize it that, unfortunately, we've let our separation of church and state, which I would not suggest that we change at all, but we've let that become a crutch for not doing our homework on how religion informs the worldviews and political aspirations of others. And, you know, so... So by having this so compartmentalized, we've got, had it off the table. So it's not right. been on the policymaker screen for many decades, and we've been worshiping at the uh, rational actor uh, model of decision-making uh, with religion deemed to be irrational. Right. So not only do we not know how to work with it, and not only have we been lazy about learning uh, how religion informs others, uh, but we also have some very real operational constraints that uh, cause people to shy away from making any sort of uh, investments or moves on the religious side. What are you thinking uh, or, about when, when you say that, operational constraints? Well, uh, things like uh, uh, modest investments, for example, on the religious side early on in Iraq could have had enormous payoff in the security equation. In fact, while the war was still going on, as brief as it was, we received a message from CENTCOM, which was uh, uh, conducting the war, uh, asking us if we could put a team together to come over to uh, uh, train senior military chaplains in how to handle localized conflict having religious content. Mm-hmm. So we we got a team, a really terrific team together, and all set to go, but the funding never came through. And the funding in this case was $50,000 from start to finish. Which so is just pretty, nothing. Pretty Nothing. Yeah. Uh, lost in the rounding there. But, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, it is the case that uh, uh, more often than not in government and even in, in industry, in, cor- in the corporate sphere, uh, when people hear the word religion, they run for the hills because mm-hmm. all they see is downside of being uh, accused of favoring one over another, this sort of thing. So we're out there kind of with one hand tied behind our back in a very different arena. And by and that, you mean we, the official American presence in in uh, in other places. That's right. I mean, we Americans. And, you know, I want to ask yeah. you, I had an interesting conversation right after the war began I mean, in the early, early days, um, or maybe it was right after the war ended, which, as you say, was very short, that official period, um, with a young Iraqi-American who had gone over to talk to the early American provisional, the coalition authority on 
creating uh, civic structures. And, um, you know, he said to me, the United States, um, at the, the approach to religion, and he was not an especially religious person. I mean, he was a fairly secular Muslim um, Iraqi. And he said that the approach has been to focus on a few uh, authority figures, um, Ali al-Sistani, and um, not pay attention to Islam as it functions in lives. And he was saying, you know, why are we not um, creating Muslim uh, chambers of commerce, which is exactly the kind of civic organization that was at the bedrock of American communities and, and American democracy? I mean, and that would, that's something, that's about, not just about um, having a, a capacity to prevent uh, sectarian conflict, but building positive structures. I don't know, how do you react to that? Well, I think it's a, a very good point, but uh, I, we were even very uh, slow off the mark. I mean, uh, uh, too late to be useful at all in in uh, uh, keying in on Ayatollah Sistani, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we put our whole plan forward and got absolutely no feedback from anybody of consequence there. And what we didn't realize is, you know, the, the people of Iraq don't feel loyalty to a nation state. They feel loyalty to their religion. And they feel in their religious figures, and not only Sistani, but uh, you know when Iranian ayatollahs would come over to Iraq uh, shortly after the war was f- finished, they were treated like gods. I mean, it was just mm. amazing. Uh, but but his point about uh, the local uh, associations and the like is a very good one, and there's a great analogy here with uh, what happened, as you'll recall, the massacre that took place in uh, Gujarat in India a few years ago mm-hmm. where 2,000 Muslims were slaughtered. Um, the, there was a study conducted in the wake of that looking at other parts of India where you had a similar mix of Hindus and Muslims, and they wanted to try to figure out why did some of these uh, have this kind of uh, uh, conflict and problem uh, where others did not. And they concluded out of that study that the key was civic associations where you had both groups involved in common civic associations. Where religion was on a, the table, if, even if they weren't religious associations or you, religious you identity. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You didn't have a problem because mm-hmm. they're used to working together and you don't. there's not, not the opportunity for, you know, the sort of uh, uh, discord to uh, uh, build up and the pressures to uh, expand and that sort of thing because you've got a constant venting process. But as you've written widely about and also and spoken, quite frankly, about with the State Department and with military leaders and professionals, um, we Americans would have to completely reexamine not just some of our ideas, but some of our instincts um, in order to take those kinds of dynamics seriously. I mean, when you say that Iraqis um, would pay much more attention to um, religious leaders. I think Americans, you know, instinctively feel, well, they shouldn't. <laughs> well, it shouldn't right. be that way. So we're going to build civic structures so they'll be different. Um, yeah, we we sort of play to our own comfort zone, uh, which is largely irrelevant to the situation over there. Hmm. I'm afraid. But um, you yeah. know, for example, I can give you. Uh, we're currently involved in Pakistan. You know, I think in a meaningful way. We've been uh, there for over three years, uh, actually on the ground, uh, reforming the madrasas, the religious schools that, uh, among other things, gave birth to the Taliban. 
And, uh, you know, when we started this process, we, we teamed up with an Islamic Policy Studies Institute who actually invited us to, to be a partner in this. And they did so on the basis of, uh, according to them, the credibility with Islam that we had uh, acquired through our work in Sudan and Kashmir. And, and were they based also- in Pakistan? Also? Yes, they're mm-hmm. in Islamabad. Mm-hmm. And also because uh, we're faith-based and our center has religion in its title, and they say, you know, which makes a, a big difference to them. Well, anyway, we got into this, and uh, it was very dicey and hypersensitive, as one might imagine. And, uh, and our, our goal has been to, uh, well, just backing up for a second, what most people don't understand is the history of these madrasas uh, back in the Middle Ages. These were the absolute peaks of learning excellence in the right. world. Right. And then it was only uh, European exposure to them that led to the creation of our university system. But you take little things like, uh, you know, funding a chair in a given discipline or the mortar boards and tassels you wear on your hat at graduation. All that came out of the madrasas. Really? Uh, yeah. And then... <laughs> Uh, over the years, under the impact of colonialism and the like, they just regressed to where today they're really about rote memorization of the Quran and the study of Islamic principles. And the problem with this is, for example, in Pakistan, uh, the, you'll find youngsters as young as the age of 12 who have memorized the Quran from cover to cover and having a clue as to what it means mm-hmm. because their first language is Urdu right. and they're not given enough Arabic. To they're learning it in Arabic, to, Quranic Arabic. Ex- exactly, and, and then what happens is a local militant comes along and misappropriates uh, pieces of scripture, which all religions are prone to do from time to time, to recruit them to his cause, and these kids are just easy prey. They're totally without any ability to challenge or question. So, so in addition to trying to, we've got two, two objectives there. One is to expand the curriculums to include the uh, uh, physical and social sciences with a special emphasis on human rights, particularly women's rights, and um, uh, religious tolerance. And the second, which I think is even more important, is to transform the pedagogy to develop critical thinking skills among these students. And uh, thus far, uh, we have really been on a roll, and for two reasons. Because we've, in the first instance, we've done this in such a way that they feel it's their reform project and not something imposed from the outside. Mm -hmm. We've given the the madrasa leaders a lot of ownership in the process. And secondly, inspiring them with their own heritage, pointing out how many of the pioneering breakthroughs in the arts and sciences including religious tolerance, took place under Islam a thousand years ago. Well, once they start hearing that and internalizing it, all of a sudden, you know, start walking a little taller and thinking, hey, maybe we can do better. And one thing that has been encouraging to me across all of the, there's five sects that sponsor these religious schools, and the two hardest line are the Diobandi and the Wahhabis. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but across all those five sects, uh, uh, one point in common that all of these madrasa leaders seem to share is a real concern for the fact that they're not doing well by their students. They seem to care about that. Which is what teachers care about in any culture. That's that's right. Mm -hmm. And they themselves were victims of this same approach, you know. So it's, Hmm. uh, it's, it's, it, we really tap into a lot of deep feelings (laughs) in this process, you know. And I'm still really curious, though, how they came to be working, I mean, I understand that they approached you, but why would they approach any American organization or any outside organization? 
Well, it was because I had a personal relationship with the executive director of that uh, okay. institute. Who he knew me, we trusted one another. But uh, your your question's well taken because about uh, uh, a year ago, I sat down and asked him the same question. I said, "Look, I know you know me. We're good friends. We trust one another." I said, "But why in the world would you engage an American NGO to partner with you on something like this?" Yeah. And uh, and he the answer he gave me was what I told you uh, about the credibility that we enjoyed with Islam and the fact that we had uh, you know uh, we we were faith based in nature and uh, and now uh, interestingly enough the harder line elements of the Wahhabis and the Diobandis uh, really didn't want to have anything to do with this process because of the in, the. Islamic Institute's uh, affiliation with one of their competing sects. So mm-hmm. so they sought us out to negotiate separate tracks. With the Wahhabis them. did. The Wahhabis and the Diobandis. And mm-hmm. by the way, in Pakistan, uh, the Wahhabis are, are hardline and they get their funding from Saudi Arabia, but the Diobandis are far more powerful, but they're also every bit as hardline. Okay. And they, they too get some funding from Saudi Arabia. But but they all you know they all they seem to care and this is despite some really terrible things that are going on. I was just over there a month ago uh, and I I addressed uh, a madrasa we had not been in yet. This was a uh, Wahhabi madrasa that was identified with the London bombers, and another uh, Diobandi madrasa that uh, is thought to supply the the uh, fighters for Chechnya and Kashmir and also has spawned two of the most uh, violent anti-Shiite terrorist groups. But I was there, addressed both of these, and uh, there was a lot of rage in the room because this was right at the peak of the Lebanon crisis and uh, the rage related to U.S. foreign policy. And I was able to get past that by, uh, I started out by saying, look, uh, we're not a government organization, nor have we ever received funding from our government. I said, and while the United States has clearly made some mistakes of late, you must not forget the uh, times it's intervened on behalf of Muslims in Bosnia, Kosovo, Somalia. I said, in Somalia, for example, over 100,000 Somali lives were saved hmm. as a result of that humanitarian intervention. And I said, and why you can also fairly criticize us for operating with a double standard in the Middle East because of our strategic relationship with Israel. I said, so too do the Arab countries operate with a double standard, who complain mightily over Israeli mistreatment, but turn a deaf ear to pleas from the Palestinians for humanitarian assistance. So I said, everywhere you look, there's double standards, and it's driven by perceived national self-interest. And then then I uh, would lay on them several verses from the Quran that I'd committed to memory. And, and did the you commit them of, to memory in Arabic? Are they in Arabic? No. You, no. No, okay. I'm not that good. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. <laughs> but, right. But, but I did in English, and, okay. and they understood English. And so I, uh, I, uh, the, the thrust of them was uh, something to the following effect. Uh, uh, oh, mankind, God could have made you one if he had willed, but he did not. He made you into separate nations and tribes so that you would, could know one another, cooperate with one another, and compete with one another in good works. And I said, and that is why we are here today. We want to open the competition in good works. <laughs> well, when you reach that point... Uh, this is a this is a kind of a critical point. The, the rage dis- disappeared because they know that we care enough to learn about their scripture to be able to 
you know, engage with them on that basis. And, mm-hmm. and it gets past the business of tolerance. Tolerance means you'll put up with somebody. Right. But you get to respect, you know, it shows you care enough about them to understand their values and how they think and operate. It makes a huge difference. And that's one of the things I think in our American foreign policy we just are missing the boat on in mm. so many ways. I've often thought that tolerance is, you know, such a limiting word anyway, and it's a word that religious traditions would would insist on something more uh, always. Um, well, these that, these that, virtues of hospitality yeah. and compassion and and right. seeing others as children of God are much more powerful than than the than this kind of um, cerebral ideal of tolerance, which we need. But I think religious yeah. people would say it's not enough, really. Well, and you know, in in this situation, for example, you say, okay, what uh, what difference is this going to make? Well, for one thing, for openers, it probably means a, a better future for the children of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. But when you consider the fact that it gets right at the very heart of this global war on terrorism in a positive way, it, it speaks to the future of our own children. Yeah. Well, know? what what strikes me is that. Um about about the, your work and specifically this work with the madrasas is, I, I do think there's a sense that many people share that we in our foreign policy are fighting um, symptoms, are, are fighting this rage without addressing, are, are fighting the worst manifestations of rage when it when it spills over into terror, right? Without addressing the causes of it, and yet the moral bind that arises is, um, you know, that once people have have committed themselves to violence, then understanding them also isn't um, a practical option. But what you're actually doing is going back to some of these places where one can trace the lineage of some of this violence, but working well before that is a problem, before that would manifest itself. Mm-hmm. That's that... right. Uh, I, I uh, your your point's very well taken. Uh, once violence starts, it's very difficult for anyone, including religious leaders, to really uh, put the toothpaste back in the tube. Mm-hmm. Uh, the greatest influence is uh, is up front uh, or in the wake of, but during is very very tough. And in fact, uh, uh, just three months ago, there was uh, the uh, top Sunni and Shia leaders uh, went to Mecca and they signed a a Mecca covenant uh, calling for an end to the sectarian violence in uh, in Iraq uh, between the two sides, and and uh, the issued the, the the appropriate fatwas and and the rest of it. But uh, uh, the beat goes on, and yeah. uh, you know, and when I think about you know exactly two years before that, in October of 2004, you had Ayatollah Sistani encouraging uh, all the all of the uh, uh, the Shia to uh, to get out and vote. And this is the chief, this, the senior Iraqi cleric. Exactly, mm-hmm. and and you know the the turnout for the vote was hugely impressive, and that word went out through all the mosques. You know, mm-hmm. and what needs to happen now, I think, is that we need to play our cards uh, much uh, better than we have to date, and try to see if we can't uh, put some teeth into this. Uh, uh, this covenant that's already been constructed, you know, mm-hmm. and try to help 
people uh, take action on it. Now, it's tough because you've got these insurgents involved, and uh, there's supposedly about 1,300 foreigners uh, who, you know, would not buy into any of this. But but uh, I, I clearly think that we're uh, truly missing the boat if we don't try to engage Iran uh, on the on the Shia side and uh, Saudi Arabia on the Sunni side mm-hmm. to uh, to sort of weigh in on a religious basis and to because uh, these people you know what they're told in the mosques uh, they usually go out and act upon right. and uh, right. you know we just so. sorry Mitch did you okay are you wearing a jacket I think are you wearing a jacket Doug I think Mitch is hearing some what are you hearing Mitch a- Kind of rustling, or are are you wearing a jacket that might be? I'm not. I'm not hmm. wearing a jacket. I but, uh, my, my headphones sometimes uh, hit the collar of my shirt. I'm. I'm not. Oh, okay. I'm not hearing it. All right. Um, you you've written um, that, and again, this speaks to the world. How the world has changed um, between the Cold War era and now. You've written. Um, in contrast to the kind of realpolitik of the previous era, what is required now is not a shrewd understanding of the interests of both sides, but rather an understanding of the emotional stakes of both parties in, in any conflict. Um, you know, can traditional diplomacy address or take account of the emotional stakes of parties in some of these intractable conflicts? Well, I think it could if uh, if we made a few changes uh, right at the moment. It, it would be very difficult to do. Uh, but you just uh, said a little bit ago, and I totally agree with it, that uh, we've been uh, totally fixated on symptoms and uh, not really thinking about cause. And and uh, you know, when you start to think about cause, in fact, I'm I'm in uh, deliberations with uh, Oxford University Press about a third book now, which would. Uh, be entitled uh, Religion, Terror, and Error, uh, <laughs> The Urgent Need for Cultural Engagement. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but it gets right to what you're talking about. And, and what I would do if I were king for a day in the United States, I would, I would say, okay, what resources do I have at my disposal that already exist that, uh, that we could uh, perhaps channel in more helpful directions in addressing this global contest with militant Islam? Uh, one of the first that would leap to mind are military chaplains who, uh, if they're with the right training and if their rules of engagement were expanded, uh, they could be out there on the front lines uh, engage, you know, developing relationships of trust with local religious leaders, and, mm-hmm. uh, and a whole host of good things could come out of that. And in fact, we, we uh, in 2001, trained all Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard chaplains in this sort of thing. Uh, Your and, center did? <clears throat> Yes, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was, um, but their rules of engagement uh, were not expanded uh, to take advantage of that I afterwards. And, and you know, about as one might imagine, about a third of there, about thirteen hundred of these chaplains altogether. A third of them were very enthusiastic. A third were very willing to give it a shot, and a third were, you know, this isn't why we signed up. You know, right. so right. it's sort of what you would expect. But but that's one one piece, and it's a resource already in being, and it's a resource that's already about both church and state, and it finesses the battle of the budget because it wouldn't cost you anything. Now, a second one is uh, that I think is a huge strategic asset that we have at our disposal. Uh, and not only have we not recognized it as such, but we've been unwilling, 
unwillingly uh, alienating it, and that's the American Muslim community. Right, but, uh, right. And so we're Say trying to bring that. that. Say some more about yeah. that, why that's an asset. Well, it's a huge asset because you find that these American Muslims, for the most part, I mean, everybody views any Muslim they see as a potential sleeper cell, and it's an, that's an understandable psychology. But frankly, uh, I've been uh, engaged with a lot of American Muslims, and they're every bit as patriotic and concerned as the rest of us. And, and you know, there was a the big hue and cry of why, not, why aren't the moderates speaking out against yeah. these outrageous excesses. And, and they're were attempts to do that that uh, didn't really bear fruit. But after the London bombing took place, I'll tell you, the sleeping giant arose. And the American Muslim community, I don't care who you're talking to, the FBI or anybody else, they are just as cooperative as they can be. They're speaking out. They, they, you know, the only way they get in the newspapers is by buying ads and the like because it's not newsworthy that right. people are opposed to this stuff. But their heart's in the right place. And so we've, we've been trying to bring... Uh, that community together with the U.S. government. And uh, last year, in March, we convened the first of what will be annual conferences, but we brought some 30 uh, leaders from the American Muslim community together with uh, 30 U.S. government security officials and foreign policy practitioners and to see if we couldn't, uh, you know, inspire them to start working together for the common good. And more specifically, we wanted to achieve three things. First was to... to uh, uh, capitalize on the extensive paths of influence that the American Muslims have to these Muslim communities overseas mm-hmm. in bridging our relations with Muslim countries overseas. Uh, second is to inform our foreign policy and public diplomacy with a Muslim perspective. And and uh, as of this point in time, we still haven't done that on the foreign policy side. Right. Yet when we were engaged with the Soviet Union, we used to you know, do, do what was called red teaming, you know, put on their hats, see how they would, you know, defeat us if they Isn't were... Isn't that you know. interesting and, that we haven't yeah, made yeah. just that connection, that no, parallel? No. Oh, and it's so obvious, you know. Uh-huh. And then the third uh, objective, which is probably more important than the other two in some respects, was to see what we can do to try to help empower the American Muslim community to assume a leadership role in the further intellectual and spiritual development of Islam. And as I've tested this idea with uh, different communities around the world, Malaysia and elsewhere, uh, there's a real openness to it. Uh, Everybody recognizes that the American Muslim community has greater freedom of thought than any other Muslim community in the world. And also, on a daily basis, they are bridging modernity and the contemporary practice of Islam. Right. I mean, what what American Muslims have said to me these past years, and and, and that's a diverse group. Amer- you know, to say American Muslims sure. is like saying American Christians. Um, there's right. a lot that's of diversity, true. both um, theologically and just in in terms of humanity. But um, Islam has had a, has a different trajectory here because Islam has is, that this is a completely different. Uh, this is a a free. Uh, culture there's a it is islam encountering a whole new world and and a whole new um, range of possibilities and they're very compatible with islamic faith that's right and you know there there is a process within islam which is called ichihad and uh, it was mm-hmm. in full bloom when islam was at its its peak but it's laid dormant for you know hundreds of years now and and this is a process whereby one reexamines 
how one's religious values informs one's daily life in light of major changes in the external environment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you go back to when Sharia, Islamic law, was first conceived. It was a very liberalizing influence then. I mean, it was a, it was a very rough world. And Sharia, believe it or not, was, was much improved for women, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, since then, you know, uh, we've got the international... Code of Human Rights and all this sort of stuff, and it's passed Islam by, and they just need to catch up. And uh, they already have a ready-made process for doing that, and it's just a matter of getting the right people engaged. And I, I think also the point about, you know, something that Americans don't talk about perhaps as much as they might or remark on is 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 how... Um in contrast to some of the cultural turmoil and clashes that have happened in, even in Western Europe um, with was between Muslims and the larger culture, that, that hasn't happened in this country, um, even after 9-11. Well, that's right. And, and that's uh, one reason is because uh, I think the United States really stands apart. We are a nation of immigrants, and, and we've had open immigration policy from day one. And, and you know, so... Immigrants get assimilated. They get, uh, you know, they get integrated. They become a part of this process. And you take the average uh, uh, Arab American uh, or American Muslim, uh, they, you know, their standard of living is quite high. I mean, they, they exceed the national average. It's just like you take the uh, folks from India, who uh, Indian Americans, you know, it's pr- probably the, the, the best... Uh, healed of all the the immigrant groups. I mean, they enjoy a very good standard of living, and they they, uh, enjoy a good family uh, existence and the rest of it. And Mm -hmm. so they they don't want to see this overthrown at all. Um, You know, it's striking to me, when I first became aware of your work, which I think was about 10 years ago, um, and the kinds of case studies that are in your first book, The Missing Dimension of Statecraft, um, yes. Most of the actors and the conflicts in that, and I, you know, off the top of my head, I think of South Africa and, and was Northern Ireland part of that book also? Or, uh, no. The, or the, but the conflicts that had been more, um, that we knew about, that were more um, visible, but mostly had Christian dynamics. That, I mean, I, I think I remember asking you, and I, I don't think this was on the air, I mean, maybe when we first met at a gathering, and, you know, you said that you had mostly ended up studying Christian actors. Um, so much of what you're doing now includes um, Islamic actors. And you've also noted in much of your writing that that in most of the conflicts today, there is some kind of Islamic interface. Um, and I want to know why you, how you see that. Why is that, um, that there is this Islamic interface um, in well, many uh, geographic places? Yeah, let, let me uh, back it up just for a moment. But uh, the reason the first book was uh, largely Christian in its content was uh, we originally set out to try to find uh, good examples of where religious or spiritual factors had weighed uh, into good effect mm-hmm. in, in past conflicts. And thought we had about eight uh, of, uh, of from other religions. And when you scratch beneath the surface, uh, you found that there really wasn't any there there. And so we, by default, sort of ended up on the uh, Christian side for the most part. Uh, 
situations involving Christian peacemakers. Uh, that does That's not to say there weren't examples. We just didn't find them. But uh, in the sequel to that book, which came out in 2003, uh, the title of which is Faith-Based Diplomacy, Trumping Realpolitik, right. uh, we, we went into, th- this is very multi-religious, and it was prospective, where, where the first book was backward-looking in order to prove the point you were trying to make of situations were already resolved. The mandate for these uh, world-class scholars from five different religions was to to examine a conflict in which their religion was currently engaged and to uh, think strategically of how one might apply the peacemaking tenets from their religion to good effect in that conflict. So that's what that book was mm-hmm. about. Uh, and the, um, the business on Islamic interface is that I believe that uh, the, if you look around the world today and see where the the greatest angst is uh, in relation to the past excesses of colonialism and the like. Uh, you find that an awful lot of that's in the Muslim world, you know. And um, uh, it's we are the next project. We're likely gonna right now. We're we're in Sudan. Uh, we're in Kashmir, right. Pakistan, Iran, and Syria, and the U.S. Uh, but the next one's likely to be Colombia, where there is no Islamic interface. Mm-hmm. So. A uh, whole, whole different uh, challenge down there. But but in Islam, I think that, uh, you know, it had its heyday, and then and then it suffered reverses and was backed into a corner. I think it's one of the reasons that uh, the, uh, uh, hmm, the traditions relating to women are so onerous is this, this, this was sort of the last thing the men had that they had control over, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so we're seeing some of that play out. Um, but you know, uh, just to give you an example of uh, when I when I mentioned that I was uh, in Pakistan uh, uh, a month ago uh, at these different madrasas, after in one workshop, uh, one of the madrasa leaders came up to me afterwards, and he he had his hand over his heart, smile on his face, smile in his eyes, and he said, "You have made me so very very happy." He said, "We thought all Americans hated us." Well, I thought to myself, you know, given the media coverage in the West, I think probably right. Most Americans mm-hmm. <laughs> probably do hate him, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, he he felt that respect. Well, another one, this one really is a grabber. Uh, another one came up and said that he had a situation in his village where a young woman had been caught on the, uh, talking on her cell phone at two in the morning to a young man in an adjacent village in whom she had an interest. And the village elders felt that this uh, violated their sense of honor. And uh, the consequences were to be that she was to lose her life, her mother was to lose her life, her sister was to lose her life, the boy's mother was to die, and the boy was to lose his nose and his ears. And this madrasa leader said, you know, ordinarily, you know, this sort of thing happens a lot, and he wouldn't make much of it, but Based on the discussions that we'd been having about human rights, he now felt compelled to go back and confront this and to do so on religious grounds. And and it was with some trepidation. He feared for his own life in this process as well. But he, he went back and he did this. He pointed out to the elders how there was nothing in the Quran that prohibited a woman from talking to a man. And he also made reference to verses that encouraged the peaceful resolution of differences. And he was able to resolve it with no one getting harmed. And uh, that's, uh, 
you know, that's a situation where uh, religion trumped tribalism uh, in, a, in a context where it's very difficult to know where one begins and where the other <laughs> Where it's often you know, hard ends, to tell you know? the difference. Exactly. You know, and our hope is, of course, that this uh, can be a precedent for years to come in that village and perhaps uh, spread to other villages. But it's not always a given that religion's going to always triumph because, as some of these folks will tell you, say, look, my tribal customs date back 3,000 years. Uh, Islam's only 1,400 years. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know... Because of your credentials and the, your career in the military and um, foreign policy circles, you do have many opportunities, as I understand it, to present your ideas to people at the State Department and working in defense. And I believe that is it religion, the missing dimension of statecraft, is is um, is it required reading for new State Department? It it was uh, at the moment. I'm not quite sure, but uh, yeah. we had we had two targets on that book, and mm-hmm. the Foreign Service Institute was one. So it has one. been read by a lot of new diplomats yes. coming in the last years. And um, That's right. but I wonder. I mean, the story you just told in that story, in fact, lives were saved. Um, but I wonder, um, does it happen to you? Because what you're describing is such a different way to think about building relationships with with the Muslim world, which is really what mm-hmm. you're talking about. Um, right. And do people dismiss this as naive as, um, or as isolated examples, which can't, which cannot be fit into national policies? Uh, no, I'm, pl- I'm pleased to say that uh, that's not the case. Uh, when, when we first started out in 1999, there was a sort of tepid acknowledgement at the State Department now there's downright enthusiasm both at state, at defense, and at CIA in uh, in the for this work you're doing, taking. really exactly because they, they they realize that they can't do it, you know, mm-hmm. but they realize that you know this probably is <laughs> one of the answers. Uh, Working with madrasas and, and yeah, dealing with exactly. religious actors in a place like Sudan, which is something else you've you done. You bet. Talk to me about Sudan. Talk to me about how. Um, about what you've done there and how it gives you a different... You know, the news from Sudan, Sudan is not a place people know very much about in detail. The dynamics are so foreign, you know, this Islamic North and a Christian and animist South. I think it's hard for most, um, you know, casual newspaper readers to understand with this crisis that is decades long. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am curious, but I think that the, that the overwhelming message is one of despair and a violence that just continues and despair that just gets worse. I wonder, how, talk a little bit about what you've done and, and how your being there and working with religious actors there gives you um, a different perspective on it. Okay, I'll be glad to. And I, and I must say that if uh, people in the United States uh, are not well informed, uh, a huge responsibility lies with the media because uh, it's just been a an absolutely one-sided uh, presentation. And I'm no apologist for the government of Sudan, but uh, they've done some things that deserve recognition and, and, and to be applauded and never get any credit for it. But, uh, well, when we were invited to come in, I uh, took a look at it, and there were uh, any number of NGOs or non-governmental organizations like ourselves over there in Sudan, but they were all working in the south, 
dealing with the symptoms of the problem, trying to alleviate the suffering that was taking place as a result of the conflict, and I think doing as good a job as one could do. Uh, so my hat's off to them. We we decided to, to try a different strategy. We uh, wanted to go to uh, get at cause rather than symptoms, so we deliberately went to the north and pursued a strategy of establishing relationships of trust with the Islamic regime, and from that vantage point, trying to inspire them to take steps toward peace that they wouldn't otherwise take. And about a year and a half into this process, we had a watershed moment in November of 2000 when we brought together 30 uh, religious leaders and scholars uh, from uh, both the Christian and the Muslim uh, communities. Uh, scholars are important, by the way, because within Islam, it is so decentralized that the influence of any given leader of a mosque is, is somewhat limited, right. even if they have huge mosques. Uh, and it's the scholars that really have the wider impact. So, But we had 10 prominent Sudanese uh, Christian religious leaders, 10 prominent Sudanese uh, Muslim religious leaders, and 10 uh, internationals from both faith communities. And the most difficult part of the challenge was getting the Christians to participate, which I had expected would be the case. And, you know, they were uh, totally uh, uh, disillusioned. They'd been beat over the head so mm -hmm. long. And the government of Sudan, on three different occasions over the previous 10 years, had convened great, uh, you know, interreligious dialogue conferences involving people from lots of countries and stuff. And nowhere along the way did the Christian leaders of Sudan get a chance to, to air their grievances. Mm -hmm. And these all ended up being just PR bonanzas for the government. So they were, they feared a repetition of that. And, uh, and I told them, I said, look, uh, there will be no PR whatsoever. And I said, and furthermore, you have no option. I said, you're Christian you're called to be peacemakers. This is about making peace. You have to come whether you want to or not. Mm. So they came with their heels dragging. But after the first day, the uh, Christian leaders came up to me with smiles on their faces. And they said, you know, this is the first time we've ever been heard. Well, by the third day, there were prominent, and this was a four-day event, but uh, and it was uh, we were addressing the religious aspects of the conflict. And, and by the third day, very prominent Muslim participants were uh, verbally expressing the need to do something about the problems they were now hearing, many of them for the first time. And after it was all over, a, an elder statesman uh, took me aside, uh, an, uh, again a Muslim, uh, who had been a diplomat all his life. And, and he was, you know, pretty far along in years. And he said two things. He said, you know, this is the first time in the history of our country that Northerners and Southerners have spoken to one another from the heart. But why? And why? What, what, what was different about your gathering that, that, that hadn't happened before, hadn't been possible before? Was it structured so differently? Well, what it was was uh, an exercise in what I call faith-based diplomacy. Uh, very simply put, just to uh, define that uh, in the larger picture, it means incorporating religious considerations into the practice of international politics. But even more simply put, it means making religion part of the solution to some of these intractable conflicts that exceed the grasp of traditional diplomacy. So this one was a real uh, uh, exercise in faith-based diplomacy. We, we began each day with readings from the Quran and the Bible, uh, we proceeded each day with a uh, prayer breakfast for the internationals and for local religious leaders. Mm. And more to the point, we brought a prayer team from California, halfway around the world, 
whose sole purpose was to pray and fast during those four days, praying for the success of the deliberations. Now, the Realpolitik crowd would dismiss this as, you know, silly stuff. But, uh, you know, through the through those four days, you'd see these folks come in, and they were matched by an equal number of Sudanese Pentecostals who also engaged right. in this process. Okay. And they come in from the sides, listen to what was going on, and then decide what needed praying for and go out and pray. And when oh. my when my vice president uh, uh, for uh, training uh, called with this idea and asked me what I thought of it, I said, I think it's, a, it's marvelous. I said, you know, I can't believe that people who pray five times daily are going to get upset if we bring a prayer team. Well, all of these things, the combination of all these things, really caused people to rise above themselves. And while the Christians bared their grievances just as baldly as you could hope, it was all done in a cordial tone. And at the end, you know, we... We had a genuine breakthrough in communications between the two faith communities, 17 consensus recommendations. Uh, one of the ones that we uh, put, we acted on about six of those, and one of them that we put into effect took us another two years to do it, was to form an interreligious council that meets monthly and brings the top religious leaders from the Christian and Muslim communities together to surface and resolve their problems. And and, and what's what's so interesting about this is this is an independent body who has as its mandate, part of its mandate, calling the government into account for its religious policies. And this is in the context of an Islamic dictatorship. Right. You know? right. So not only did the government agree to the formation of this body, they agreed to leadership that they didn't want, but we I fought for five months to get. And, uh, of that body, and and then they also agreed to take seriously the recommendations that came out of it. And Darfur, notwithstanding, which is a Muslim-on-Muslim situation, right. uh, I'm really pleased to say that the government of Sudan has honored that commitment to the tune of more than a half a million dollars worth of uh, land for new churches and funds as restitution for their past seizure of church properties in the past. So it's uh, it's really going just smashingly well. And why that's so important is because uh, when Sudan gained its independence in 1956, I think it was, uh, it immediately underwent a civil war that lasted 16 years. And in 1972, it came to a close in the Addis Ababa Accords. And then 11 years later, it broke down and war erupted again for the same reasons that it erupted the first time. Because during that peaceful interlude, there were no initiatives to cement new understandings at the grassroots level and the like. So, so that's why I feel so uh, strongly about uh, creating infrastructure. We created that c- uh, council. We also created under a, a committee to uh, uh, protect religious freedom that brings accountability to that area as well. But if you have these kinds of mechanisms that can be constantly venting, you know, the pressures that build up of right. uh, misunderstanding and the like, uh, then you have a chance for a peace actually lasting. You know? But I wanted to stop. We have we have more time, right? We're not... Okay. Yep. I might just add, do you have another minute? We do. Yeah, we, are, we, we, have, yeah. we have the um, studio till 3.30, so we can... I okay. want to talk about... I want to talk about Iran as well. Hmm. Okay, I just wanted to, oh, the okay. last la, last point there yes. was that uh, was that another ingredient in the faith based diplomacy there was that when I would have my conversations 
with the uh, foreign minister of Sudan or the first vice president who ran the country. Uh, these are realpolitik kinds of discussions, you know, trying to persuade them that what we were suggesting was in their own best interest to okay. do. But looking for that convenient opportunity to make the helpful reference to the Quran or how the prophet uh, Muhammad dealt with this or what Jesus might have to say about it, uh, they opened up. They hmm. opened up. It was because, you know, you find that many Muslims are almost resentful of having to deal with uh, secular constructs because that's not what they're about. Mm -hmm. But when you reach out in this faith-based way, uh, they really respond, and they respect that, and they like it a lot. The other thing I might <coughs> add, too, is mm -hmm. on a realpolitik basis, meanwhile, back at the ranch here in Washington, we worked behind the scenes to try to get the uh, Bush administration engaged in and uh, leaning on both sides to force a peace between the North and the South. And, and that uh, ultimately paid off. And, you know, and again, what's in the news again now is Darfur. And, and I think that th these are two, as you're saying, that this is, this is a part of that dynamic, um, which has a lot of history behind it and is very complex, which is, in fact, going well, even while that um, is going badly still yeah. again and just to give you one added piece of perspective here mm -hmm. uh we had i came back from one trip to sudan to see a you know a statement by the uh commission on international religious freedom which is an official body that informs you know that uh, relates with the state department and congress and what have you and they had labeled uh sudan as the most uh, violent oppressor of religious liberty in the world today and I had just been over there, and at the time I was there, a German evangelist had been invited in to conduct a crusade, and it was conducted right in the heart of Khartoum, and over 300,000 people came out, the majority of whom were Muslims, because this was a healing ministry, hmm. and, uh, you know, some Muslims got, it lasted five days, and it among other things, it sort of froze the transportation grid. But some Muslims got upset about it, not only those inconveniences, but the, you know, the impropriety of having this Christian crusade in the heart of this Islamic capital. And so they, right. they went to visit with the president and, and to air their grievances. And the president said this, and I got this from the Pentecostal pastor who invited uh, Bonke in to do this crusade. He, mm -hmm. was, he was present. He said the president said, well, you know, the Christians were here before we, and they have every right to celebrate Easter. So getting no satisfaction there, they go over to Hassan al-Turabi, who's the Speaker of the Parliament and thought to be the arch-villain of uh, the spread of militant Islam across uh, Africa and beyond. Right. And uh, he says to them, he says, you know, I've been watching this very closely. Uh, they're not attacking Islam. They're mere merely celebrating their religion. He says, why don't you celebrate your religion and see how many Christians complain? Okay, so I contrast that with, with how, how Christians get treated in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, mm. give me a break. You know, mm. It's just, just amazing. You know, it's, but, uh, and I mean, and I think another place where you have unusual perspective is Iran. And, um, and again, as uh, this country reconsiders, considers, reconsiders its options in Iraq and in, in sort of thinking towards not being there anymore, um, the question is how um, we should, could begin to deal with Iran. And, you know, I've been reading these dispatches you've been sending back from your, from your work there over the past months. And, and I think also there, 
you would offer a very different perspective of, um, you know, what we, the United States, are facing in Iran. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> talk to me about that, about the uh, the public perception here and what you experience and, and also how that makes you think about openings and possibilities. Sure. Well, <clears throat> one of the, uh, my first exposure to Iran came in 2003 when uh, I was privileged to be part of a nine-member Abrahamic delegation that was led by Cardinal uh, Ted McCarrick uh, over to Iran. Uh, it was Abrahamic in that it included Jewish, uh, Muslim, and, and uh, Protestant and Catholic representation. Um, and I was just simply amazed. Uh, it, Iran is an incredible country, uh, just amazing. The legacy of the Persian Empire and all the cultural uh, manifestations are just awesome. And But we're over there, you know, and the, uh, uh, it was the drumbeat of the great Satan continues, you know. Right, uh, every right. Even while we were there, the Friday prayers at Tehran University, uh, Rafsan Johnny, you know, tees off on the United States. And, and this is sort of standard fare for the last 25 years. And when you drive downtown Tehran, you see the sides of buildings with these huge murals on them with uh, bombs dropping on silhouettes of the United States. And, uh, and so you get the feeling, you know, this may not be the friendliest country in the world, but at a a personal level, one thing uh, they do is they they clearly distinguish between the policies of the U.S. government and Americans. And from top to bottom, all we experienced was, you know, the fact that Iranians love Americans, you know. Now, you can understand it with the youth, because anything the mullahs tell them is bad, they're going to think it's good. Uh, But but even at you know higher levels, she found there was there was genuine uh, uh, warmth in, in in their feelings and conduct uh, uh, during our time there, um, and so uh, I raised the money uh, last year to uh, to uh, have a reciprocal delegation come over to this country, and it was very high level, and supposedly we were the highest level delegation that had been there since the revolution in in 79, mm. but we, we were not an official delegation. It was unofficial. But but you uh, met they, people in this government. They met people uh, in yeah, the Yeah, we, we met with every the president, uh, you know, the uh, leaders of parliament, uh, all the grand ayatollahs, and had numerous conversations mm-hmm. and, and very fruitful stuff. Well, well, we we invited this delegation over here, and it included the head of their Academy of Sciences and people at that level. It was a very prestigious group. Also nine in number, also Abrahamic, uh, in that it included the one Jewish member of parliament from there and also mm. uh, one of the Orthodox uh, bishops. Mm. Uh, so we took them through, it was about 10 days here, and one of the highlights was we set them down with uh, the nine of them with eight, uh, what I would say were very well-versed congressmen. Uh, and uh, they sat down and, you know, hit all the hot-button issues. And uh, at one point, I'll never forget it, uh, uh, one of the congressmen pointed at the Ayatollah who was leading the group. He says, tell me, point his finger at him, he says, do you think Israel has a right to exist? And uh, the uh, Ayatollah sort of uh, uh, smiled and gave a small laugh, and he says, of course Israel has a right to exist, just as we have a right not to recognize it. And so well. this was kind of the level of repartee, you know. And, and if I had to grade that uh, 
debate, so to speak, uh, I would probably have to give uh, the higher marks to the Iranians in the sense that uh, we always get caught up on sort of the perceived double standard. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're on, their, on their case for treatment of minority religions when the situation's far worse in Saudi Arabia, and we're not doing much about that. Uh, we, we are all over them on the nuclear issue and sort of turn a blind eye to Israel, you know, and, and for understandable reasons. But, but these are the things that make it difficult to hold a debate like that and come out on top. You I know, see. But, but, but uh, in terms of openings and what could be done, um, a couple of years ago I played in a war game, the target of which uh, was Iran. And I came what do you mean you played in a war game? Well, you know, the Department of Defense and others conduct war games where they have scenarios that Where you can strategize. You to, these are, yeah, what, uh-huh. if, what if this happened and okay. then you go through this whole okay. process and it can stretch out for days. Anyway, the, the culprit in this particular war game was Iran. And I came out of that wondering, you know, what might a peace game look like? I'd never heard of such a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I sort of, we, you know, put some thought to it and came up with the idea that uh, uh, a peace game could involve uh, a group of very uh, well-respected figures from both sides who are not in government but who are too respected not to be taken seriously by their government, bring them together. And, uh, and I didn't want to do it in a neutral location. I wanted to do it in Iran for two reasons. One is I thought it would provide greater incentive for the Americans to participate because mm. everybody wants to go to Iran. But also I thought it would also convey a, uh, a note of humility uh, when it is all but totally absent from U.S. foreign policy these days, you know, going to their turf to conduct such an exercise, but bring them together for about a week and to address the specific uh, obstacles that stand in the way of a cooperative relationship. And I personally believe, based on my knowledge of of the, you know, the nuclear question and the terrorism and the rest of it, that there's enough maneuvering room there that we probably could find our way to uh, some happier uh, state, uh, and I, I, I spoke with Roger Fisher up at Harvard, you know, and uh, who uh, uh, wrote the book "Getting to Yes," you know, the sort of win-win approach to negotiating. Right. And and he, uh, at least at that time, was willing to uh, facilitate such a such an. Uh, so, are you going gathering. to do that? Are you thinking about doing huh? it? Are you going to do it? Well, uh, no, I'll tell you what happened is I, I went and met with the Iranian ambassador to the United Nations, who's a very thoughtful, sharp individual, and I tried this idea out on him, and he was very keen on it because uh, he'd read Fisher's book, and he he was intellectually curious to see how this thing could play out in reality, you know. And he said that if uh, Rafs and Johnny were to win the election, this was before their last presidential okay. election, that uh, it would probably be possible to do it in Iran. He says if anybody else wins, then uh, it would probably, at best, it could happen in Europe somewhere. Right. Well, Rafsanjani might be back. Well, he might, <laughs> but uh, w- uh, once Ahmadinejad won, uh, nobody knew where they stood, and so everybody's afraid to move in any direction at this point. So. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's one thing, you know, and, and uh, another way for the U.S. to sort of engage Iran, and, and I, I have to tell you, the one thing we can't, we were all very taken by, the key to engaging with Iran is religion. 
Mm. And I'll just give you an example. And I guess Remember, that should not be surprising, should it? No, it shouldn't, because you see, they don't they don't trust us politically. We say things out of both sides of our mouth. So they, but they do believe in religion. And mm-hmm. you know, in the wake of the earthquake, when we were going to send over a delegation right. headed by Elizabeth Dole, you know, which on the face of it made sense because she used to head the Red Cross right. and all that, uh, and they would not have anything to do with that. But had we, instead of her heading it up, had Cardinal McCarrick headed it up, it would have gone in a heartbeat. They would have taken it, you know, mm. and so so the what the deal is is if you if you start out with a religious framework, you can segue into talking about anything you want, you know, and then into nuclear weapons, uh, the, all the whole nine yards, uh, and so that's something you know that we sh- should keep in mind. And, and one good way to reengage with them, in fact, our center we we drafted a a religious and a political response to Ahmadinejad's letter to. Uh, uh, President Bush, which never got answered, of course, but we think we really ought to answer that. And in these letters, we lay out all our concerns and and throw the religion right back at them. You know, mm-hmm. but you so, need to engage. <laughs> you need to engage, or you you just don't have any leverage at all. And I mean, that's also that is also the message of the of the report on Iraq, the the Baker that was headed by James Baker. That's right. You Not, know the. One, one concern I have about the, the Baker report and uh, to some extent others, uh, there's this thought about, you know, pairing back your combat forces and embedding embedding U.S. forces in uh, with the uh, Iraqi forces. And, mm-hmm. and uh, frankly, when you look hard at that, uh, and I think they then they require some benchmarks uh, of the Iraqi government that uh, that they would uh, meet milestones relating to national security, uh, rec- reconciliation, and governance. And then if they don't meet those milestones, then, then uh, we would reduce our support and what have you. That's exactly the same same routine we went through in Vietnam, you know, and we called it Vietnamization. Mm. Uh, but okay. at the end of the day, it's not a strategy for winning an unwinnable war. It's a strategy for uh, giving us uh, sufficient political distance to uh, uh, escape the problem and blame it on the, the hmm. then the Vietnamese, here it would be the Iraqis. But, but I do totally support what they say and the International Crisis Group says about engaging the regional powers. Mm-hmm. You know, And this is one way. If we could get Iran engaged and we could get uh, Saudi Arabia on the Sunni side, that's huge influence. We could... We could I think really get at this sectarian conflict, really, and then also really be speaking to <clears throat> to every side of of the Islamic dynamics, not choosing right, not That's choosing right. That's the, right. the, the the Shiites. Um, yeah. You know, I'm curious. Just this is not doesn't directly follow on what we've been talking about, but I'm curious out of all of your experience, um, as you think about this time ahead of us, as we um, as Congress and the president rethink our strategy in Iraq and also think about, because, you know, people are wanting to think about getting out. How do you think about what is morally at stake um, in all the possibilities before us? And what, you know, what are your concerns? What are the dilemmas that you see? Well, one big dilemma was captured so uh, graphically in uh, uh, Colin Powell's statement to the president, you know, if you break it, you own it. And, you know, we could easily find ourselves uh, uh, cursed for having uh, uh, come in and, and stayed there too long and cursed for leaving, <laughs> you know. Right, right. <laughs> you know, sort of lose-lose anyway, you go at it, you know. And, and uh, we have a tremendous moral obligation. But, you know, uh, I, uh, 
for example, uh, when in the Gulf War, when we encouraged the Shia and others to rise up against Saddam Hussein, and then we abandoned them, you know, we I thought we really dropped the ball on a huge moral obligation there. Sort of like back in 1956 when uh, uh, Dulles encouraged, uh, you know, uh, a liberation movement in, in Hungary, and they rose up, and, and right. of course we, we, we weren't going to come in. And, you know, we just need to be careful about the kinds of things we say and then turn around and do, mm-hmm. uh, because if, if we don't set the standard, uh, no one out there is going to. We need to kind of draw to a close, and what I'd like to talk about as we finish is, um, you know, you're, you're talking about a new paradigm of diplomacy, some of which, in fact, you're already enacting, not as a government agency, but um, you are building relationships and building relationships of trust and creating some new models, and, and I think others are doing that as well. Um, you've, you've written about the qualities of the new diplomat. I suppose you mean the faith, faith-based diplomat. Um, and one of them is a pluralistic heart. Um, and I, I just want you to describe that because it's not um, a relativistic heart, not the same as a relativistic heart. And I think that's kind of where the old imagination about religion went. Yeah, I think the pluralistic uh, heart is one that uh, understands the, the need to reach out to others uh, out of a posture of respect. Uh, you know, if we as a Christian, you believe that everyone's uh, uh, created in the image of God, then uh, your obligation is to look for that spark of God in them. And In our centers, uh, we operate with uh, uh, the following assumption. You know that in any given conflict, not everyone on a given side is bad, and even those who are bad aren't bad all the time. So okay. we try to play to the <laughs> angels of their higher nature by bringing the transcendent aspects of their religious faith to bear on the secular obstacles to peace. And and one, one thing I never quite uh, finished in your earlier thing about how we get at cause, uh, one thing in terms of new ideas that I think is terribly important mm-hmm. is to create a position of religion attache in the U.S. Foreign Service. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and, and this, uh, what happens now typically is either the cultural officer or the political officer, or maybe even the ambassador, is tasked with dealing with the religious issues. But typically they get pushed aside by more pressing business, and mm. they're often complicated and difficult to understand. And, and we've looked hard at this, and just a stable of 30, a cadre of 30 of these religion attaches posted in those U.S. missions in countries where religion has particular salience could make a huge difference, you know, because they would they would be trained to understand these kinds of things and how to deal with but them. But, I mean, I also think I'd never heard of the idea until I started reading you again. It's so logical. I've, I worked in an embassy when I was younger, and you have a political officer, you have an economic officer, you have a cultural officer, and in the world we inhabit now, it seems, it seems like a no-brainer that you should have a religion officer. I, I totally agree with you. And, of course, uh, I think if it were ever going to come to pass, you know, I've been harping at this for a while. And and you're a, talking to the State Department about it, too, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I had a piece in the Foreign Service Journal uh, back 2001, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I determined that uh, change like this would never come out of the executive branch. It would have to be forced by the Congress and... And that's where I'm sort of okay. putting my, investing my time is to try to develop some uh, support there because these are the kind of things, you know, in, in, when you're in a world that's just permeated with uh, in, in, re, religious imperatives, 
uh, driven largely by this collision between globalization and traditional values, uh, it only makes sense for us to try to get sufficiently detached to say, how do we need to do business differently and more effectively? Mm -hmm. And I get the feeling we're just in a total reactive mode and we're mesmerized with the symptoms. The The cost of a religion ashe, you know, for the 30 of them would be $10 million a year. Mm -hmm. Now contrast that, $10 million getting at cause, dealing able to deal with cause versus the billions we're spending on, you know, baggage handlers and the, the like dealing with the symptoms. <laughs> right, okay. It's right. just crazy. Um, you know, and you also talk about as a quality of a new diplomat, and you used this word a minute ago, a transcendent approach to conflict resolution. And I, I think in the world we inhabit where religion um, can be a very dangerous um, force, that sounds um, a little bit scary, uh, a transcendent approach to conflict resolution. I mean, what do you mean by that? I actually don't remember using it, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I... I I do uh, speak about trying to bring the transcendent aspects of uh, people's religious faith to bear on, you know, on the uh, uh, secular obstacles to peace. And uh, an example of that, okay, and we do these in our faith-based reconciliation seminars, uh, which are about three and a half days long, but we we go very much into the concept of forgiveness, you know, which, uh, again, would probably be dismissed by your typical realpolitik type, but... But unless you can bring forgiveness to bear in a very thoughtful and effective way, you will never break the cycle of revenge that uh, passes from one generation to the next to the next to the point where in Bosnia you have a neighbor doing unspeakable things to neighbors for something that happened 1,200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's mm -hmm. insane. And we, one thing I have found, and this has just really surprised me, is Muslims really resonate to this concept of forgiveness. And I could give you examples of that, but you don't have time. Even it's though just, it's not um, so orga organically a Muslim concept as, as it is organically a Christian concept. That's right. Uh -huh. That's right. That's what's been so surprising to me. Uh -huh. And what about, um, you know, finally, you, you do talk about... Um, religious actors in conflict, um, th this new diplomat having an ability to persevere against overwhelming odds. <laughs> where does that come from? Where, where did that come where, from? No, what, I mean, yeah. <laughs> where, where are you pulling it from? I don't know. One of your one of your speeches. <laughs> I've read a lot of your speeches, but I mean, what I mean, what is is that about drawing on on one's faith? Um, I mean, do, well, do that, religious actors right. in these conflicts, yeah, which, yeah. as you say, sometimes are 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 echoing over hundreds of years, do they bring certain qualities because they're religious that can be effective, that can, in fact, be practically effective? Well, I think so. One thing I would hasten to point out is I would not want to overclaim or overstate the significance of uh, what it is we've been talking about because uh, there are clearly some situations where this can't work. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, uh, brutality sometimes has to be met on its own terms. But, but uh, I, I think that when people, uh, if if you're talking about the transcendent uh, peacemaker, I'm talking about people particularly that uh, uh, are faith-based in their approach and that, uh, and that engage in peacemaking uh, and conflict resolution out of a sense of calling as opposed to just a, a vocation. Because when you do something out of a sense of calling, for example, uh, I could point to Matthew 5, 9, uh, which is, Blessed are the peacemakers, and say, you know, that's one of the 
ingredients that drives me to do what I do and to go with, you know, out without pay for 60 uh, hour weeks for a half a year at a time. You, know? mm-hmm. <laughs> you, do, you just do what you have to do because you believe in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of what I mean by the, the transcendent aspect of, uh, you know, if you can capture what these religious uh, uh, this faith-based peacemaking that uh, that our books are about, you know, it's got huge potential because the people are so committed to trying to to do a good job with it. Okay. Yeah, I've got a question from behind the glass. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. One of my colleagues heard that when you talked about the third day of the conference in Sudan and you got to the fourth day and the Muslim elder statesman said two things to you. And the first was this had never happened before. And I didn't let you say what the second was. Yeah. The second one's uh, interesting. He said that uh, never before in his limited uh, experience, now it wasn't so limited because he was pretty old and he'd been a diplomat all his life, but he said he had never before seen in uh, uh, a single meeting as much intellectual horsepower as existed in that meeting on the Muslim side. And that was not by Hmm. accident, it was by design because uh, we weren't there to overthrow the regime. We weren't there to abolish Sharia. We were there to uh, answer a very simple question, and that's what steps can an Islamic government take to alleviate the second-class status of non-Muslims in a Sharia context? Hmm. And uh, and if we could come up with credible answers, and we had highly credible uh, Muslim figures around the table, this could resonate in other parts of the world like Nigeria and Indonesia where you have the same kinds of tensions. So that was uh, hmm. that was the second thing he said. Okay. Is there anything else you'd want to add to what we talked about? In some ways, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. There's This is so big and important, and I know you have many more stories. Is there anything you'd want to talk about? Well, on, on uh, New Year's Eve day, I was uh, in Dallas, Texas, addressing a group of about 300 folks and, you know, talking about our center's work and all. And I was deeply touched by how affected they were by this. Uh, I mean, just about everyone who had a, a son or a daughter in the military came up to me, uh, you know, and they there's such a yearning for hope out there, yeah. you know. They, it, there just doesn't seem to be any. You just one, It's one day of bad news after another. And, and regardless of how limited uh, our operation is, uh, at least, you know, they saw some room for hope. Mm-hmm. And, and that was very, uh, uh, that that affected me in a very deep level as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we don't get, if you don't hear about the stories that would generate hope. There's there's plenty happening. What, what you hear about, what you see are pictures of despair and Violence. Well, that's right. You know, and if you go to the go over as I have to the orthopedic ward at Walter Reed Hospital, and uh, you you see uh, triple amputees. I mean, you just people who have paid such huge sacrifices. You know, and and you have to say, you know, something's got to really be worth that kind of sacrifice to 
to, to make it. And so I'm just hoping that at the end of the day that uh, those who have sacrificed will be able to look back and say, hey, you know, uh, <clears throat> may not have been pretty, but we, we did contribute to something that's had a useful outcome. So mm-hmm. so that's what we're we're working for as well, and hopefully that'll that happy day will come. Okay. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you, and I've I'm glad to have finally done it because, as I say, I've been following your work. I, I have a couple questions. I might send you in an email. Is that okay? I have your email. Sure, from absolutely. All right, so I'll, I'll write bet. to you after this. And, um, yeah, um, thank you so well, much. Well, I hope this, hope this was helpful. Yeah, it was very helpful. And we'll let you know exactly what's happening with this and dates and all that. As, Great. As we My do. wife's from Minnesota. So I know. She's I remember got some that. Relatives. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, well, we'll make her happy. Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye bye.